Welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Good For Me by Clark County native Shelly Tackett. Shelly is our feature Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang on with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about her and let you listen to that entire song. Now let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. In the early decades of the 20th century, the Stark County capital of Canton was so riddled with vice and corruption, it was widely referred to as Little Chicago. And into this seedy underbelly rode a white-hatted newspaper publisher who focused all his resources into shining a spotlight on local crime bosses and a corrupt police department that was paid to protect them. He was killed for it. Prosecutors brought five men to trial for that journalist's assassination. Two bootleggers a gun for hire, and two cops, and one convictions against all five. But the biggest fish in their net, Canton Police Chief Saranis Ed Langle, was acquitted on appeal. And soon after that, the man convicted of pulling the trigger claimed one of the five convicted as a conspirator wasn't involved at all. People couldn't help but be left wondering if the justice system got it right. Was an innocent man sent away for life while a police chief got away with murder? This is the story of Donald Ring Millette, a journalist who won his industry's greatest award, the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service, but only after becoming a martyr for his cause. Donald Ring Millette was born in Elwood, Indiana in 1891, the sixth of seven sons born to Jesse and Margaret Millette. Newsprint, Inc., was in his blood. Not only was his dad a journalist, but all five of his older brothers were already working for newspapers when Don graduated from Short Ridge High School in Indianapolis. Millet had his life planned out early. The day he accepted his diploma, he proposed to his girlfriend, Florence May Evans. Then that fall, he entered Indiana University, to learn the family business. When Millette became editor of the student newspaper, he left no doubt how he felt about the power of journalism. He wrote, Legitimate publicity is the cure for almost all evils. Politically, Millette was like the rest of his family, a proud Democrat. 
and positions he took in his editorials drew criticism. It was a tough but necessary lesson for someone who wanted to be an agent of change. But Millette bit off too much too fast. Attending classes, overseeing a student newspaper staff of 31, the responsibilities of being a newly married man, and writing for the Indianapolis News to boot, he was exhausted. In the spring of 1914, just one term shy of graduation, he up and left Indiana University and never returned. He was so worn out, he even thought he might give up journalism altogether. He and Florence bought a 77-acre orchard in rural Indiana, planted apple trees, and started producing grape juice. But a year and a half of that proved to Don Millette that he was no farmer. He returned to journalism, and by 1923, a succession of jobs had taken him to Akron, Ohio, where he was hired as advertising manager of the Akron Press. He hated it. But the job did bring him into the circle of James Cox, a former Ohio governor who owned the Cox News League chain of papers. Cox was in need of someone who could rescue his Canton Daily News, a Democrat-leaning paper that had only half of the circulation of the more dominant and conservative Canton repository. Canton then was a fast-growing city with heavy industry and a large immigrant population pouring in to work the factories for low wages. Throw in prohibition and you had the perfect recipe for organized crime. Gambling, prostitution, narcotics, and bootlegging all flourished. In 1924, Cox hired Millette as the paper's editor, believing he might be exactly the kind of crusader who could take on the city's political and social issues while building circulation. The Millettes and their four children moved to Canton, into a rented home on the corner of Broad Avenue Northwest and Crown Place, and quickly became immersed in the city's civic, social, political, and church circles. Just over a year later, Millette was named the paper's publisher, and that's when he brought on board his brother Lloyd, an experienced and respected journalist who became his city editor. Together, the Millettes revamped the Daily News with an emphasis on crime coverage. A defining moment in Millette's life came in the fall of 1925, when he and Florence and their two new best friends, Walter and Carrie Vale, were having dinner. Four teens came into the restaurant, obviously intoxicated. He recognized one as the child of a prominent family. Millette was so disturbed, he announced he was going to find out where the city's children were getting such easy access to liquor. It also happened to be election season, and Millette threw the weight of the daily news behind Stanford Swartz, the Democratic challenger to Republican Mayor Charles Ball, who Millette had been blaming for much of what was wrong with Canton. Millette wrote emotional and powerful editorials in favor of law and order, 
promoting Swartz along the way. And Swartz won overwhelmingly. Given that Canton was a Republican town, Millette saw it as a sign that citizens were waking up and would be receptive to change. Don and his brother Lloyd, who was actually the writer behind many of Don's editorials, doubled down on their focus of local crime lords and corrupt cops that wouldn't rein them in. One of the quirkier things the Millettes did was hire a man named William LaSalle, a lip reader they called the Marvel Man. They introduced him to the public, saying he'd be hanging around downtown looking for hushed conversations between criminal types. It was a publicity stunt, to be sure, but the Marvel Man started receiving helpful tips about the criminal element, including rumors that police Captain Ben Clark was involved in the narcotics trade. The Millettes met with Canton police leaders to share this information and found the reception to be lukewarm. Almost every issue of the paper highlighted crime news, and reporters turned into investigators, naming names. Millette started pressuring city officials to clean their own house. Police Chief Ed Langell, Captain Ben Clark, and others on the force were frequent targets, even to the point where Millette openly suggested they resign or be removed from office. Millette was not particularly popular with his aggressive shake-the-tree style, but he had some support. There were a few on the force and in City Hall that were on his side. In November of 1925, the city's new safety director, Samuel Holliday, told the Millettes he wanted to partner with them. He went undercover with a prohibition agent to gauge the breadth of the vice problem in Canton and reported back to the paper that in a single evening, he had located 31 brothels, a bootlegging wholesaler, and numerous instances of illegal gambling. Police Chief Ed Langell responded by doing nothing. Canton's power elite, they saw Millette as someone who was running the town down and exaggerating the crime situation. And a lot of ordinary citizens didn't particularly like the reputation their city was getting, especially since the criticism came from a Democrat. The Canton Repository, by contrast, wrote praising articles about the police chief and his force. Still, the Daily News was gaining readers and closing the circulation gap. Millette pressed on. Christmas of 1925, the Daily News started a series of reports on the bootleg liquor trade, again naming names. In one affair they reported on, a Canton cop named Walter Guthrie had gotten into trouble for arresting a bootlegger named A.H. Harris. The problem was, Harris's boss were a couple of vice lords who had paid police to ignore them. The cop who did the arresting was punished by being reassigned. And the cops, prosecutor, and judge all played a role in making sure the bootlegger got off easy, a $100 fine, and allowing him to use an alias so it wouldn't show up on his record. Whenever the vice lords complained to Chief Ed Langell about all this public attention, 
He told them to take it out on Millette, who was clearly out of his control. At the end of 1925, the Daily News published an editorial saying Canton, for its size, enjoyed one of the most highly developed underworlds in the country. Millette wrote, While the full realization of local conditions have not yet dawned upon the public, it is coming. 1926 brought more of the same. In January, the Daily News participated in setting up a sting with Safety Director Holiday. At the appointed hour, when liquor agents were set to make arrests during a whiskey delivery, who showed up right behind the bootleggers but Canton Police Captains Ben Clark and Homer Moore? The bootleggers were arrested. Clark and Moore argued they had come to make the arrest themselves, and nothing more came of that. By late February, the newly elected Mayor Swartz had seen enough. He fired Chief Langle. But Langle's job back then had civil service protection, and the chief was entitled to an automatic hearing. The three-member panel deciding his fate heard from many that seemed to conclude that while the chief might have some flaws as an effective leader, he was certainly not intentionally corrupt. The panel voted to reinstate him by a vote of two to one. By now, Don Millette had grown used to receiving death threats. He told an Associated Press reporter once that even police had threatened him if he testified in a federal investigation involving three Canton men charged with drug trafficking. And police informants were passing on intelligence that someone in Canton had hired a couple of thugs to blow up Millette's home. While that never happened, the tip, years later, proved to be true. Concerned for the welfare of his publisher, Daily News owner Jim Cox, who lived in Dayton, met with Millette in the spring of 1926 and cautioned him that a community could not be helped more than it was willing to accept. Millette could only point to the growing circulation of the newspaper and convinced Cox to let him stay the course. Cox agreed and left the meeting with a warning. I admire your courage, he said, but I am sure you must realize you are in great danger. Millette spent the next several weeks on a campaign to boost civic spirit, including a three-pound edition delivered to every Canton home for free, which touted all the good things about the city's history, industry, business, and culture. But the paper never let up on its anti-corruption campaign. In May of 1926, the Daily News announced its own personal investigation into an unsolved murder of a mobster-turned-whistleblower named Paul Kitzig. It was a crime Canton police couldn't or wouldn't solve. Millette fingered Kitzig's killer as another wise guy named Ben Rudner, a hardware store owner from Maslin, and a prominent bootlegger who was known to visit Chief Langle from time to time. The threats against Millette became even more abundant. Hey, fellow true crime aficionados. I've stumbled upon the ultimate hidden gem, Dakota Spotlight by James Wollner. 
It's a revelation. Picture this. Thoroughly researched, original, and peppered with real interviews. No sensationalism here. Just gripping storytelling with heart. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll always want more. So cozy up and join me on the edge of your seat. Trust me, this podcast is the real deal. Start with the Mandan murders and prepare to be hooked. Let's uncover this treasure together. Listen to Dakota Spotlight. In July, the Millettes moved to a new home they rented at Claremont Avenue and Tuscarora Street. Soon after, this move was noted to a police clerk who scribbled the new address down for anyone to see at police headquarters. On July 10, a Saturday, Don and Florence went out for the night, leaving their four children in the care of a babysitter. A mysterious caller rang the house and mumbled some vague warning to the sitter. The next night, July 11, the Millettes were at home with their best friends, the Vales, and Lloyd Millette and his wife when they got another anonymous call, this time saying something about three men that had been seen hanging around the Millettes' garage. That Sunday night, Don, Lloyd, and Walter Vale searched the property and then spent the night guarding the house with a single pistol and baseball bats. For Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday nights, Millette enlisted the help of a sympathetic police officer, George Beresford, to watch the house. And when those three nights passed without event, Millette thanked the officer and sent him home. The next day was Thursday, July the 15th. The Millettes and the Vales went to the dance at the Molly Star Club. It was held in a large room above a drugstore. They stayed for a couple of dances then went downstairs for chocolate sodas, then returned to the Millette home around 11.40 p.m., where they lounged on the porch, enjoying the quiet, cool evening. Just past midnight, they moved into the house, the veils to the living room, Florence to the kitchen to make some coffee, and Don, deciding suddenly he should move his car from the drive into the garage. He wasn't outside more than five minutes when those inside heard a volley of gunshots, as many as ten. Florence glanced outside and saw muzzle flashes from tall bushes in the overgrown vacant lot across the street. Then a bullet smashed the window near her, spraying her with glass and barely missing Walter Vale. Florence screamed, I think they got Don! She scrambled up the stairs to check on her children, then back downstairs to find Walter and Carrie Vale out in the driveway next to Millette's lifeless body. A neighbor had joined them, and they carried Millette into the parlor and laid him on the sofa. But he was beyond help. Walter Vale jumped in his car and raced the ten blocks to Columbus Avenue, where Lloyd Millette lived. He pounded on the apartment door. Come quick, they have shot Don. They have killed him. Lloyd was so distraught, Walter had to help him get dressed. Florence had called the family physician by now, and Dr. Guy Maxwell quickly arrived. He spotted the bullet entry wound on the left side of Millette's head. He pronounced him dead around 1 a.m. Millette was just 34 years old. Florence at first resisted calling police, fearing they were likely involved. 
When she finally relented, police took their time. They didn't arrive for nearly half an hour. When they did, Florence screamed at them, We know who killed him. Get hold of Chief Langle or Captain Clark. They can tell you. And Lloyd Millett, he ordered some of the lawmen that he recognized from their own editorials out of the house. Chief Langle, meanwhile, learned of the shooting and went to his headquarters, but never ventured near the house, warned of the family's hostility. The assassination of a newspaper publisher was met with outrage and received national attention, even occupying the front page of the New York Times five days straight. The Canton Repository, which had always supported the police chief and his officers, called the murder the act of a coward. By all accounts, Canton police did little to investigate the murder. They interviewed a single neighbor and even then didn't follow the path she pointed out where she heard the gunmen running. Investigators didn't scour the vacant lot where everyone said the shooting came from. They didn't secure the crime scene. They didn't even bother to stop the curious public from strolling up the drive and dabbing handkerchiefs into Millette's blood. And on the morning of Don Millette's funeral, Chief Langle did something that could never be fully explained. He sent four workhouse prisoners to the vacant lot across from the Millette home to mow it and clear it of weeds and debris. Since Canton police had never inspected the site, even though every witness had pointed to it as where the gunmen stood, the cleanup destroyed anything useful that might have been there. People also couldn't help but question the chief's motives when the very next day, the Daily News ran a picture of the chief taken by a photographer who had caught him laughing heartily with a colleague while holding the Daily News under his arm, the murder headline clearly visible. Don Millette had a small funeral in Canton. Then his body was taken home to Indianapolis for a large public affair. Journalists from all over the country attended to honor a man they considered a martyr. Meanwhile, Canton industrialist Henry Timken began a reward fund and others contributed to it until it grew to $27,000, the equivalent of nearly a quarter million dollars today. There was no shortage of suspects. Dozens of criminals and police officers had been accused by Millette in his many editorials. But in less than a month, Chief Langle announced his people had exhausted all their leads and concluded that it was probably the work of some outside professional hired by Pittsburgh gangsters, without explanation of why out-of-state gangsters would want a Canton journalist dead. Nobody was convinced Canton police were doing all they could. Ohio Governor Victor Donahue sent a private detective to town to check things out and report back. But there wasn't really another office that could take over. The Department of Justice felt it had no jurisdiction in the case. And while the FBI would one day become famous for its team of gangster hunters, in 1926... They weren't doing that work yet. And so if Millette's murder was to be solved, it would have to happen in a, well, less traditional way. 
Next on Ohio Mysteries, The Assassination of Donald Millette, Part 2. We'll explore the unique investigative work that solved this crime and the lineup of criminal and police conspirators brought to trial. I want to credit much of the research in this episode to a Kent State University press book called Murder of a Journalist, The True Story of the Death of Donald Ring Millette. It was written by Thomas Crowell, who published his exhaustive work on this historic event in 2009. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Shelley Tackett is a country singer-songwriter who grew up in Clark County, Ohio, just outside Springfield. She's a graduate of Kent State University and is currently pursuing her career in Nashville, Tennessee. Shelley has a brand new live album called The Last Live that just came out this month. We are featuring a single off of it called Good For Me. Anyway, you can keep track of Shelly on our website, ShellyTackett.com. Shelly has a unique spelling, so if you have any trouble finding it, just go to our episode notes or our website, and we'll put a direct link for you there. Well, let's have another listen to Good For Me by Shelly Tackett, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
never would have said that first hello Never would have gave my heart so Lord knows I'd learn to let you go If I knew what was good for me Lord knows I'd learn to let you go If I knew what was good for me for this album. It means a lot. It means a lot that you're here. I hope you had a good time. Or at least maybe I hope I broke your heart. Either way, I'm good. Okay. What an interesting song to end the night with. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>